0: I.V.M. It's been nearly nine months since the final episode of Feeding 10 Billion, Season 2. During that time, the world has continued to turn. But many things have, of course, changed forever. The COVID-19 pandemic has continued to rage with a severe and debilitating second wave. And particularly, of course, in India. With all its cascading effects, COVID-19 is expected to cost the global economy upwards of $1 trillion, says the UN. The World Bank said it's expected to throw over 60 million additional people into extreme poverty due to these economic shocks, including over 12 million in India, which already houses a fourth of the world's extreme poor. It's not so much a wake-up call as it is a four-alarm fire. We're entering a new era, focused on building back better from what we hope is a -a once-in-a-lifetime disaster. As we record this, though, one thing that hasn't really changed at all is the fact that feeding 10 billion will mean reimagining our food supply, especially in this post-pandemic world. As population growth continues and we slowly return to normalcy, we cannot forget the lessons of the last 18 months, particularly as we scramble to nearly double our meat production by 2050. Protein, and in particular the supply of meat, eggs, and dairy from animal agriculture, continues to be a pivotal issue on which our food system will turn. Thankfully, innovators all over the world are still producing the future of protein. Delicious, nutritious meat, eggs, and dairy made from innovation in plants, cells, and microorganisms. These foods have all the sensory and cultural resonance of their animal-derived counterparts, and in fact, over the course of the last 18 months, we've seen a brighter spotlight on the work we do building the smart protein sector. So for Season 2.5 of Feeding 10 Billion, we're presenting you with some very special episodes. We're going to give you a glimpse into the Smart Protein Summit held online by the Good Food Institute India in October 2020, where we brought together innovators from India and across the world and articulated our vision for the protein supply of the next decade one which stewards planetary health, tackles malnutrition, benefits farmers, and creates jobs for millions. We're also going to talk about the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion competition, a path-breaking $15 million contest for interdisciplinary teams around the world to come together and pioneer the smart protein products that the world needs today. Over the course of 10 episodes, you'll hear from leaders in the food policy, and innovation landscape all over the world, including in smart protein, in government, as well as in the traditional big food ecosystem. And it doesn't get much bigger than our guest for the first episode of Season 2.5, Indra Nui, a trailblazing business icon and hero to hundreds of millions of Indians and women all over the world. You're about to hear Indra in conversation with me at our Smart Protein Summit in October 2020. My name is Varun Deshpande, and you're listening to Feeding 10 Billion. I'm going to be very brief with my introduction here because Indra Nooyi really doesn't need one. She's the former chairperson and CEO of PepsiCo, a board member and advisor at organizations as diverse as Amazon and the International Cricket Council, and one of the most influential business figures in the world. She's also been a trailblazer and an inspiration to billions of women and Indians over the last decades, and I'm beyond thrilled to host Indra today at the Smart Protein Summit and deliberate the future of protein together. Indra, thank you very much for joining us at the summit. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. It's good to be here, and Varun, thank you for having me. So, Indra, I'm going to dive right into this. At PepsiCo, you were a champion of conscious capitalism. You reoriented the company's vision towards what you call performance with purpose, focused on launching and doubling down on better-for-you and good-for-you products. Now, there's never been a better time for the world to recommit to this vision, with COVID-19 pushing hundreds of millions of people into acute hunger, malnutrition, and poverty. But this is going to require serious cooperation and aligning business and governments on visionary initiatives. So, from your vantage point and experience, Indra, could you paint us a picture of whether the world will be able to commit to this vision? Where have you seen this happen before?
1: The answer to this question alone could take an hour. So let me um, give you my thoughts. I had the privilege of being the co-chair of Reopen Connecticut. And so I had a front row seat to seeing the impact of COVID, who it was affecting, uh, how do we address the economy and the economic consequences of COVID. But most importantly, I had a front row seat to understand what we need to do to prevent Another COVID happening or future pandemics. Let me tell you some of the things that truly worried me. One is people with pre existing conditions, comorbidities, were disproportionately impacted by COVID. People who had asthma, people who had heart problems, diabetes, obesity. Underprivileged people who lived in dense neighborhoods were impacted disproportionately. And so I look at this and say, how are we going to address all of this? It's going to take decades to address the dense populations and lifting those people to live in more uh, expansive neighborhoods. But I think one of the things we have to start working on now is improving the health of people. It's a critical priority because if we don't, we're going to have a unhealthier and unhealthier population. It's going to increase our healthcare costs. And more importantly, it's going to make them more susceptible to any sort of a pandemic or epidemic or an outbreak that comes up because it's going to, and I'll tell you why. So what do we need to do? We need to figure out how to improve our food supply to make it way better than it is today so that people have access to healthier foods at a lower cost. Right now, people have to make a decision. If I want healthier foods, I have to pay a lot more. If I want healthier foods, it may not taste as much. That sort of a choice is terrible. So we have to give people healthier foods. The second thing we have to do is that We have to make sure they have healthy environments, which means that we have to reforest uh, most cities and countries because deforestation has taken away a lot of the cover that existed in many parts of the world. We're still cutting down forests. We have to improve our relationship with livestock because if we treat livestock badly, if we inject them with all kinds of drugs, and then we consume it, we're creating massive problems for us in terms of how our immune systems work against these various viruses that can come our way. So we are in a very interesting situation in the world. So what needs to happen? We have to figure out how to give people a very healthy food supply. And one critical element of the food supply is protein. You know, in many countries, there's abundance of carbohydrates, abundance of fats and sugars, but there's not enough protein because protein is the most expensive source of nutrition on a per calorie basis. And so we have to figure out how to give people great nutritional offerings, which are protein rich, at the same time, address this issue on relationship with livestock. And that's where I think you guys come in, in a big way. Yeah, thank you. And I I think I
0: think you rightly said there that, that we do need to think about our relationship with livestock as well as our kind of our natural commons as well. Right? And I think COVID-19 pandemic has focused attention on many of these questions in a way that we haven't seen perhaps since the Cold War. Things like global existential risk, climate change, pandemic risk, sustainability, etc. You mentioned that alternative protein may be a key lever in building a more climate change and pandemic resilient future. Alternative protein has also taken the entire world by storm over the last couple of years, even pre-pandemic. If you talk about, for example, plant-based meat, eggs, and dairy, but also just the application of plant protein across the broader food landscape. Uh, It seems like it's the leading edge of innovation for a lot of huge mega companies as well as entrepreneurial companies. So I'd like to get your perspective on this. Why now? Why has the global food system, even pre-pandemic, focused on plant-based and cultivated and fermentation-derived proteins and that opportunity at this moment in history?
1: I think first, there has been invention and innovation in plant-based proteins. So it's now available in the market with a taste profile that's acceptable. So the fact that it's available and it's at a price point that's not $300 for a burger uh, makes it you know, more accessible to people. So it is popular. But I think the biggest reason it's popular is that as countries' GDP per capita improves, especially in emerging markets, and those countries start to move up this GDP per capita table, the true sign that you're becoming wealthier is that you're consuming more protein. And typically, it's increased consumption of meat products. So I think plant-based proteins have three user groups. The first is vegetarians who would like to consume you know protein dense product but don't want to eat meat so those people obviously will gravitate towards you know plant based uh, meat the second is flexitarians people who want a combination of vegetable based products and meat based products but are sort of turned off by meat these flexitarians have a little bit of meat a little bit of vegetables, and plant-based meat sort of makes the bridge between being a vegetarian and being a a meat eater. And then, of course, those who are eating meat might just want to cut back one of their servings of meat with plant-based protein, because in their brain, they're thinking about what's the quality of the livestock, how are these farms being managed, how are these animals being treated? Maybe they're being impacted by the lack of humane treatment of the animals, but People are thinking about how to change their eating habits. So you've got a natural wave that is actually spurring the growth of plant-based meats. There are other issues we can talk about that, but I think it's very important that we recognize that there's a moment in time where the product is tasting quite good. It's, you're beginning to be ubiquitously available and it's kind of sort of affordable. It's not at a ridiculous price point that people look and say, oh, God, not again. I don't want to pay a ridiculous amount of money for a plant-based meat. And so I think we're at an interesting time in the evolution of this industry. Yeah, and I, I want to zoom in on that, Indra. I
0: think you made some great points there in terms of the um, where we are at at this time in history. It's looking like the next decade will be really interesting in terms of the proliferation of these. They're already quite ubiquitous. But, you know, for all this optimism, we're still just at the outset, Right? we've mm-hmm. talked, You've told me in the past, for example, that many of these plant-based meat companies, the $3 billion companies, really need to become $30 billion or $300 billion companies to make a change or a transition at the scale that's required. Mm-hmm. And the, the challenges of being able to transform these trillion-dollar industries are at a whole different level in terms of where we are at today. It demands huge investment, government support, business imperatives, of course, I mean, mm-hmm. if we repurposed all the fermentation capacity in the world, we'd probably still not be able to supply even a small fraction of the world's protein needs, even just meat, egg, and dairy needs through those fermented proteins over the next decade. So how would you go about this task from where we are now of stimulating the huge amounts of investment that are still needed to take this to the next level?
1: The first part, Varun, I think you and I talked about it when we had our famous breakfast. The world needs protein, You can develop great protein sources in a very different form function. But that's up to everybody in the industry to innovate. Now let me come to the core proposition. Let's assume you want to call it a plant-based meat, which means you're going to develop plant-based burgers, plant-based chicken, which is going to get converted to various end users. The most important thing that all have to look out for is to make sure that the plant-based product has better nutritionals than the animal-based product. If you don't do that, what you're basically saying is, we're not gonna have any inhumane treatment of animals, but our product is not the healthiest out there. And I think if I have a plea to this industry, you've got to start with the nutritionals. You've got to reduce the sodium levels, You've got to make sure the calorie levels are lower, which they are already. And you've got to make sure that nobody is looking to eat a less nutritious plant-based product because that goes against the whole notion of plant-based products. So you've got to think about that very carefully along with a price point that is at or below livestock. And I'll be honest with you, I think here's a great opportunity for plant-based protein to successfully coexist with animal-based protein, successfully coexist, and allow the market to grow both together. The more you try to position it against them, the more you're going to have issues where one industry is fighting the other. I think there's a unique opportunity to coexist.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, Indra. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of the growth that's happening in this landscape is, of course, happening from flexitarians, as you mentioned earlier, which is why I think the core value proposition that most of these companies are focusing on today is that plant-based burger. But I think we have to move away, as you rightly said, we have to diversify away from just the burger because that is a specific style of eating that exists perhaps in the United States, you know, where people are eating three beef burgers a week. And so there's a huge sustainability offering or opportunity there transition away from that but broadly yeah i think you know we see the opportunity if we're thinking in terms of decades across all sorts of plant-based foods i think we have to solve the chicken breast we have to solve the burger we have to solve the keema, we have to solve the kebab the biryani all of these things because especially in places like india the demand for them is going through the roof over the next decade but there is that huge opportunity in broader plant-based foods as well right like you said
1: um, yeah but you know what When you uh, look at a country like India, which grew up on its indigenous foods, you know, the biryanis and the kurmas and the chicken curries, a lot of the Western diets also came into India and the Indians started to like it and consume large quantities of it. What about getting chefs to really innovate on cuisines to say alternative proteins? How do you create a whole new range of incredible dishes that incorporate these alternative proteins? But I think if you really want to look at this as a incredible point in time where you can grow this alternative proteins market in a massive way. You've got to think of the entire system, the design of the product, what you call it, how you innovate dishes with it. How do you publish cookbooks which say, hey, there's a whole new range of dishes you can make with these alternative proteins, which give you incredible nutrition and allow you to be healthier. There's a unique opportunity. I think right now, it's a very simplistic approach. Yeah, there's definitely work to be
0: done, and I agree with you. And a piece of that work, obviously, is nurturing talent to participate in this sector. And you've been very outspoken about diverse talent entering food innovation, but more broadly entering the workforce. I mean, you've been a sort of progressive icon of excellence through diversity, which makes sense from where you've come, right? You've championed the potential of women. You've been an inspiration to many Indians over the years. Now, we've seen several Indian or Indian origin women and men in alternative protein companies at the leadership level around the world, mm. which makes sense. We've seen this in software before as well. Yep. Uh, as with a number of other industries, we think at GFI India that we should be accelerating and capitalizing on a kind of reverse brain drain, if possible. Mm. Right? I think in this generation, it's possible to do that. People returning to India and aiding the country's potential and capitalizing on it. That's you know indigenous crops, like you said affordable talent, technology, manufacturing, etc. cetera. Now, this is an eternal question across any sector, but what would you say are the best ways to nurture this diverse array of people, as women, people of color generally globally, farmers, scientists, Indians abroad, into this exciting new industry?
1: So I, you, you asked me a question in the prior uh, question that you asked me about fermentation. I agree with you. Fermentation is a technology that, is badly needed, we are short of capacity. And we have to innovate on fermentation because fermentation as a technology has not been advanced from an innovation perspective for the longest time. So there's innovation to be done there, whether it should be closer to markets, it should be more centralized, whatever. I think there's a unique opportunity for India to sit back and say, just as we decided to become the vaccine capital of the world, the antibiotic capital of the world, I think fermentation belongs in that genre of products. I mean, vaccine production is a form of fermentation. So I think you've got to look at creating a center of excellence and becoming the go-to place for fermentation. I can imagine India as a sovereign wealth fund, creating a fermentation cluster in a city. Pick a city which has an attractive living condition that can attract the best biochemists and scientists around the country, establish a fermentation center of excellence. So all innovation and R&D on fermentation happens there. And that particular town spawns all the technologies and supply chain investments that need to be made to put in large-scale fermentation capacity around the world. And India can very well own the manufacturers of machines I mean, here's a unique opportunity. Whoever does this first is going to be a big winner. And India should sit back and say, why not us? We have enough biochemists that graduate from colleges. I mean, your own Sneha is a biochemist. So question is, why not get more people who graduate with this very, very advanced degrees that India is invested in because Indian institutions are subsidized by the government and deploy them all in this whole fermentation business? Unique opportunity, Varun. Go for it. Indra, I totally agree. And you know, I wish we were having this
0: conversation in person, but such are the times. You know, <laughs> when, we, when we saw each other in December last year, you encouraged us to dream big in this kind of mission to catalyze yeah. a sustainable, affordable supply of protein. And you've said it during this conversation, right? That mission or that vision would extend across different categories of protein. It doesn't just mm-hmm. have to be the vision as it currently exists in the alternative protein sector. I mean, I'd say we're definitely dreaming a little bigger now with some of the initiatives that we've undertaken. Mm. Uh, But there's a huge amount of work to do over the next decade to do the things that you just described. So my final question to you, Indra, is what will our food system and our supply of kind of meat, eggs, and dairy look like in 2030 if we succeed? Will we hit those inflection points for a protein transition or a diversification Will we be able to go from scarcity to abundance?
1: Because that's really our aim here. So I'll tell you my dream, but there's a lot that needs to happen between now and then. My hope, my dream is that we don't have food waste and we have food available to everybody in the country, in the world rather, where we don't have a situation where there's food deserts and food scarcity in some parts of the world. And there's abundance of food that's just being thrown away in other parts of the world. So I'm hoping there's more equitable availability of food around the world. The third thing, which is my sincere hope, is that as a world, we make our citizens healthier. We make them healthier because we have healthier foods, more ubiquitously available, great tasting, and affordably priced. And it's all within our hands to make it happen. We don't have to add a lot of sugar and salt and you know, all kinds of processed chemicals to make something taste good. Let's think about how we can do shorter shelf life products that taste better and are healthier. Because anything that's healthier has a shorter shelf life. How do we provide that with a short cycle time to all citizens of the world? My dream is that between now and 2030, in the next decade, coming out of COVID and knowing that COVID impacts people who have pre-existing conditions, We take this as a call to action and say, let us work on something we all can commit to work on, which is making our food supply healthier. What is it going to entail? I think a lot of the packaged foods and beverage companies have got to sit back and say, how do we promote the healthier choice disproportionately versus the fun you choice? That's a challenge, but that's the push part. And from the pull part, We have to educate consumers that fixing your health is a long-term proposition. If you wake up tomorrow and say, I want to get healthy, you're not going to happen in a year or two, especially if you've had 15 years of treating your body as if it's just a vessel for whatever you want to throw into it. And so people have to understand that getting healthy is an investment in you. And the only way that you are not going to be a liability to society or family And be miserable yourself is if you invest in your health, eat the right balance of products, and the pull side has to work. So between the push and the pull, my hope is that we would make the food supply a lot more healthier, and therefore our citizens healthy. And then we address this whole inequalities and food distribution so that there are no food deserts and food surplus where so much food is wasted. Varun, that's my dream. Whether that's going to happen is not up to the dream or to governments. It's private sector, governments, citizens, non-profit organizations, everybody sitting together and figuring out how to make this a reality. It's interesting. Food is a basic building block of life. And that food supply is what needs immediate attention as quickly as possible. So we've innovated on software. We've innovated on artificial intelligence we have got to go back to first principles and work on food. The time has come. Indra, I have to ask you
0: for a follow-up question. I know I said sure. that was the final question. You mentioned uh, private sector, governments, nonprofits, everyone needing to come to the table. I think there are a lot of people in the audience who are students and young entrepreneurs or would-be mm-hmm. entrepreneurs in the space. In terms of that vision that you outlined just now, how would you encourage them or what would you say to them that they should focus on over the next decade as they take their first steps perhaps?
1: I mean, the first thing I tell all my young people that I talk to, this is your world. You know, people of my generation, I'm a boomer, people of my generation are now caretakers of this world for you. I mean, you guys are going to be around for a long, long time. So all the stuff I'm talking about, eating healthier, having access to healthier foods, holding companies, governments accountable, for what they do to livestock, what they do to the food supply. It's up to you. Rather than protest and argue about silly things to do with social media and availability of enough movies, go fight the good fight on issues that you think are important to your health, your long-term quality of life, the quality of the environment. Worry about all those things. Think hard about the true things that matter to your health as opposed to just worrying about do I have enough bandwidth so that I can watch Netflix for hours on end or engage with social media. Those are all good. They're good for passing time. But if you don't have good health, all of that's not going to work. So my plea to all of you young people, focus on the important things and make sure that you fight for change. Not in a negative way, positive fight for change. That
0: would be my plea to all of you. Indra, thank you so much for joining us at the Smart Protein Summit. It's a real pleasure to chat with you again. And uh, we have to get together and have another one of those famous breakfasts. I look forward to it, Varun. And I'm sure it'll be another lively discussion and we can argue, <laughs> about, uh, <laughs> argue
1: about the categories we should be focusing on. But I'm sure you're going to show me a lot of progress when we meet next. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye-bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed that special episode of Feeding 10 Billion on Season 2.5 with Indra Nui, speaking at the Smart Protein Summit. Indra's support for our work and the sector is a testament to its promise and urgency. Just a couple of months after the summit, PepsiCo, which of course is the second largest food company in the world, announced a deal with Beyond Meat to co-develop innovative snacks and beverages using plant-based protein. Indra may no longer be CEO at PepsiCo, but her legacy lives on at the company through this major milestone. This is Varun Deshpande signing off. You can visit www.smartproteinsummit.com to find out more about the summit, or of course, www.gfi.org.in to learn more about our work. You can also follow us on social media. We are at the Good Food Institute India across LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and wherever you get your social media fix. And of course, if you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting shows on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or on IVMPodcasts.com. You can also follow us on our social media at IVM Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to reach me, you can find me at VarunD7 on Twitter and at Varun5 on Instagram. Take care
1: and we'll see you soon.